Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. I am your host, Chris Swick, and on this podcast, we talk about mental health, addictions, ADHD, eating disorders, and really anything anyone's afraid to talk about, we talk about it on the show. I believe everyone's story is valuable at the end of the day. It does not matter what walk of life you come from. You're all welcome on this platform. You can find the show over on YouTube, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. Hit that subscribe button. Turn on those notifications. And you can find all audio formats on Spotify, Google, Apple, and really wherever you listen to your show. And you can find me, myself, over on Instagram at Depths of Darkside. Little insights, little tips, tricks, little views of my life and my personal life and stuff like that. But before we get going, I want everyone to know, I hope you're having an amazing day so far. And go out there and be kind to someone. With no further ado, I'd love to introduce you to my next guest. I got a psychotherapist, therapist, whatever he wants to call himself. You know, I got Frank Pugh on the show today. You want to take it away and let him know a little bit about you, Frank? Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here. Yeah, so I'm, my name is Frank Pugh. I am, like you introduced, I'm a psychotherapist. My training is in social work, so I got a master's in social work. For the past, I don't know, 15 or so years, I've been working in mental health in some capacity, whether that's been in community mental health or more in over the past. Mm. Better part of my career has been in private practice. I have a little boutique private practice in downtown Guelph, Ontario, where I specialize in the treatment of borderline personality disorder, OCD, addictions, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and so on. Yeah, I specialize in a couple treatments and maybe we'll get into that throughout the conversation, maybe not, but I am all for your message and everything that you're promoting through your podcast and through your social media platforms uh, around recovery, uh, especially when it comes to addictions and mental health and just disseminating and advocating and spreading the word. I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much for those kind words, Frank. I appreciate yeah. it too. You know, it's, it's a one day at a time thing for anything in life. It's, it's all you can do. Everyone is just one day at a time. Frank, can you explain the relationship between mental health, ADHD and addictions, and how do these conditions intersect and influence each other? The good question. <laughs> and I think that it's all interconnected. I think for a long period of time, we used to treat and look at things like in isolation, right? So it's like looking at ADHD and just treating ADHD or just treating some kind of mental health related issue or just addictions. And what we're really finding, what we now know uh, is as how interconnected all of this really is. So whether it's having difficulty with regulating emotions or having difficulty in focus or attention or impulse control, it all seems to overlap, right? Um, some of them also can be a result of trauma and, and early trauma in, in life or later in life as well. And just complex, complex trauma, which means just ongoing trauma through life can lead to like all sorts of difficulties when it comes to mental health and addictions. No, it's so true because I think they're all intertwined. Like you said, yeah. with the, it all, maybe not for everyone, but for a lot of people I've talked to, including myself, it all started mm -hmm. with trauma, some sort of trauma that led to my addiction. Yeah. But then that brings up my next question. When I've been talking to doctors, mm -hmm. naturopaths, therapists and stuff like that, like at a young age, I was, <clears throat> you know, prescribed Ritalin and they said, bang, that's, there we go. We got, we've hit the nail on the coffin. Once I brought that up over the last couple of years with naturopaths and other people, yeah. they're, that, they're like, Chris, that's where the addiction started because I was prescribed Ritalin at about 10 or 11 years old yeah. and copious amounts of it. Yeah. And I had copious yeah. amounts of it because it, it's not like today where the medication I'm on 
is a controlled substance now. Like if I show right. up five days early and I need a refill, oh no, I, I ain't getting that refill until no. the 30 day mark. You got to wait it out. And, 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 and not like they, they make exceptions. And I found this out is because I'm going on vacation. I was like, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be out of the country. I need it. So they had to call my yeah. doctor and get and get him to say, yes, it's okay. Sort of yeah. thing. But do you believe in prescribing kids Ritalin nowadays that young or. Oh, that's a good question. You I know, know you're not a doctor, but oh. you're a therapist and stuff. And they're like, this is where the problem started, Chris. You know, there's, I was a, abusing it. To, to give I think you an so easy to abuse when it comes down to it. Right. I think, especially when it comes down to, I have a bit of a perspective when it comes down to prescribing medications. I think medication is absolutely beneficial and useful when we have appropriate assessment, like a really good assessment of what's going on, which is a, a lot more than maybe one session or a 20 minute doctor's appointment. So I think with a comprehensive assessment, when we can actually get down to a, a fairly specific uh, understanding of what's going on, and if that's ADHD and a medication would be uh, beneficial, um, I think it's up to the people have to weigh the pros and cons. And I guess that comes down to the parents to do their education when it comes down to that. I was never diagnosed with ADHD. I never was prescribed any Ritalin myself, but I have a, I'm a man. So I was once a boy and I have a son. And the one thing that I realize, especially with our younger kids, especially our younger boys, is the amount of time we need to be spending outside being active, rough and tough play, doing something that requires us to expel a lot of the energy that we have. And the one thing I do see in my practice is it's a it's a balance between, let's say, female and males who are prescribed ADHD, prescribed ADHD medications or diagnosed with ADHD. But yeah, I just wonder if we were able to give especially our boys, the opportunity to get out and run, not have to sit in desks for eight hours a day and expect them to focus on certain things that they don't like and to be able to get outside and do some of the things. I wonder if that might help with, with expelling some of that energy and maybe not necessarily need Ritalin when it comes down to it. Yeah. No, for sure. I, I, I totally agree. And, and I wish there was more, I don't think there was as much education back in the nineties as there is today mm -hmm. or the research that had been done, but the internet wasn't really around in the early nineties no. either. That's part, of, I'm not saying that's the problem or part mm -hmm. of the problem, but it is too. Like we have, we have access to so much at our fingertips. Now you can do your own research. Yeah. But I'm not saying take all the advice you see online, but take it with a grain of salt, but there's so much information out there to learn and teach yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, yes. And what are some. I like that you say too, sorry, I go back to that, yeah. like to that you say getting outside and being that rough and tough and tumbling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's so true because so many kids are sitting in front of devices today Yeah, or it's so easy for a parent and I'm not blaming the parents, but mm -hmm. it's just so easy. Hey, go to the, here's your tablet or yep. yeah, that's okay. Or you can lose track of time while they're on that tablet and you're doing other things and sure. you already know that they've been on it for a few hours and maybe they've gone down a rabbit hole. Who knows? And Absolutely. I, it's a very easy babysitter in a sense, if you allow it to be. And I think people take advantage of that in, in, in the wrong way sometimes. And, oh, they can just be on the tablet. That's fine. They'll be fine thing. And <laughs> yeah, we'll reduce the time tomorrow. If we had, if we went over time today kind of thing. Yeah. It, it, that's just like me as an addict. This is my last time. We'll do a little less tomorrow. It doesn't work yeah. that way. <laughs> so tomorrow I'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what are some common misconceptions or stigmas surrounding ADHD, mental health and addictions that you often encounter in your practice? And how can we work towards reducing these misconceptions? 
The first one that came to my mind is like how we just sometimes speak around mental health, sometimes so flippantly, right? Like we have this kind of, it's part of our nomenclature to just be like, oh my gosh, I'm so OCD. Oh my gosh, you know what? It's just been a bipolar day for me. Or like the weather's so bipolar. And we've just tossed around some of these statements in a way that can be really judgmental and I think further stigmatize mental health. And again, it leads to these misconceptions. I work a lot with OCD. And so I think a big common misconception around OCD is that it's around orderliness or being clean or making sure that things are organized. And it's, it's so much. And I think when we say things like, oh my gosh, I'm so OCD today, that really minimizes the, the magnitude that somebody who is experiencing OCD actually experiences. The, it, it takes roughly 14 to 17 years for somebody with OCD to actually get an accurate diagnosis. And so we think about that. Generally speaking, the onset is around 10, 11 years old, and then you're not getting a diagnosis until you're in your early 20s, potentially in your early 20s. And it doesn't mean that it's a lack of trying. You've gone to uh, therapists and doctors and what tends to happen is it gets misdiagnosed. And again, there's not a comprehensive assessment that's completed. And so this just chopped up as like anxiety and so on. So the, the side effect of that is that we got an individual who keeps trying to get help and each time they go, they keep getting missed, like the, they miss the mark and, or they're receiving inappropriate or iatrogenic treatment, right? They're with OCD, generally speaking, those 14 years, people are probably engaging in some form of talk-based therapy. And we know that can have some like more negative effects on OCD. And so this can actually make the kind of difficulties worse. And so I think that's a big thing that just came off the top of my head and that I really, I butt up against a lot. And also one working primarily with OCD is always trying to work against the stigma around that and try and break that. So that people, people can actually understand it because if we have early intervention, imagine getting effective treatment at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, where you're learning about exposure response prevention, which is like the gold standard treatment for OCD. If you're learning about that, then early on, then you know, OCD is one of those conditions that will be with you for a while, right? Like for a lifetime, it's learning how to manage diabetes, you got to learn how to manage OCD. And so learning these skills early in life, is like learning how to read, right? Like you just get better with time if you allow yourself to keep practicing with repetition. So I mean, that sometimes we just talk so flippantly about mental health and that really minimizes and that keeps people from actually seeking help and seeking support. Yeah, I see what you're saying and I, I get what you're saying. Just throwing that label out there, it's a piece of candy almost. Even if it's just you and your friends, but maybe people, everyone in general, myself too, could be more cognitive of just throwing that label out. Even if you're, yeah, you're being so OCD about this or your coworker or whatever. Yeah, I get that. That's, that's so true though. It's a good way to look at it for sure. Because if we keep throwing these labels out, just throwing them out, no tomorrow sort of thing. It's never going to get better. You never know what you might make that person feel that you said it to, even though you may just be joking around or whatever, but Absolutely. you never know what that person's feeling. And maybe they won't want to talk about what they're actually feeling. If you're just going to throw that label out like that yeah. sort of thing. So that's a very good point that you yeah. brought up there. Yeah, absolutely. So why do you focus primarily, or why is your focus primarily merely on OCD? Did you happen to suffer for, from it, right, growing up and stuff like that, or were you diagnosed with it later in life? I think everybody has a little bit of the, the algorithm of what happens with OCD, right? We have something happens and it makes us feel anxious and, and distressed, and then we do something to make us 
feel a little bit more safe, a little bit more comfortable. And if we keep doing that over and over again, it can create this kind of loop. I guess I got into OCD primarily because I started, a lot of people actually started to seek out OCD treatment and I wasn't trained in it. And so then I went to person that developed the exposure response prevention, got trained up at a, in, at university of Pennsylvania. And so that's been, I would say the more recent like treatment and focus in my practice, but probably for the past 10 years, I've been primarily focusing on the, the delivery of dialectical behavior therapy which is a, a treatment that's really effective for folks who have difficulty with emotion regulation, impulsivity, difficulties in relationships, who sometimes engage in suicide, self-injurious behaviors. And so it's a fairly comprehensive treatment. And that's really, I would say that's like the, the primary focus of my practice. And it has been for, like I said, about the past 10 years. I think in, in many ways, like what got me into doing what I do I've, de I've dealt with my own mental health. I've dealt with my own trauma early in life and my own kind of battles back and forth with the abuse and misuse of substances. Like I say to my kids, listen, there's nothing you're going to tell me or somebody that like that you've done that I haven't done, right? Like drug, sex, rock and roll. That's how I got over a lot of things. And it's not always the most effective thing, but that's what I did. And so I've lived that life in a sense. And from an early age, I just always wanted to help people as like a big value of mine. And I was always interested in people's psychology. And so it's this interesting thing how, especially probably between the ages of 16 to, I don't know, 25, I had a big problem with emotion dysregulation and impulsivity and thoughts around self-harm and suicide and dealing with my own anxieties and depressions during that period of time that was, that manifested after a pretty traumatic and several traumatic events that went on earlier in life. And yeah, I don't know, I think after I finished up playing hockey and I moved into, to going to getting my undergrad, I really wanted to help people who had struggled the way that I struggled and to provide that help the way that I provided or that I needed help at that time. It was like, but that was 25 years ago. And so it wasn't like cool to go to therapy. And for men, it was like, you don't talk about that. You just swallow that right up and swallowing it right up is what caused me the most difficulties in my life. And so I just always wanted to work against it. And then also I just, early in my career, I just started working with in crisis intervention. So I've worked a lot with folks who were in a mental health or psychiatric crisis and really loved the work that I did because I saw a lot of impact that I was making, but there was gaps in it. And so DBT as topical as it's becoming when it comes to mental health treatment and mental health care, it's a resource that's just not accessible. And if it is accessible in your area, chances are you got a, a six, 12, eight. And so when I got into DBT about 10 years ago, there was no, there was no DBT resources in the 519. And then I was working at CMAJ and at that time in community mental health, I got, I was hired on as the clinical lead to develop a DBT program there. And that was like, set it off to the races. And it's been the highly effective treatment, especially when it's done Fidel adherent to the way that it's been developed. And it's probably one of the most rewarding therapies I've ever been able to provide clients because I'm able to see so much growth and change in somebody's life, not always in a short period of time, it takes time, right? But to help them build that life worth living is something that we really talk about in DBTs. What is a life that's incompatible with wanting to die? What's a life that's incompatible with wanting to use? 
what's a life that's incompatible with doing these kind of like negative things towards ourselves. Let's start to build that life. If we can start building that life, then maybe that will tip the balance a little bit, you know? So well, that's yeah. amazing, man. And I've heard lots about DBT and I've done some of it. I'd like to get back into it because it, 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 it is, it is so rewarding the things that I've learned and the things that I've read about it as well. It's, it, it gets very in depth, but you gotta, you as the individual that has to want it as well. It's like anything in life. You have to want it. You can't just, it's not going to change if you don't do the work though, either yeah, as well. Absolutely. And, and that's the main factor there. Like you have to want to open up. Yeah. And that, that's probably, I find the hardest thing, especially for men. I, yeah. And then not that women, and I'm not being sexist here, women are wired differently, but they have, they feel their emotions much differently than men. Mm -hmm. They will express those emotions much differently than men. It's just the way they are. And it's proven though, there's proven research that women just express those emotions much differently mm -hmm. than men do, whether it's the way their brain is wired or whatever the case may be. But it's just over time, like I remember having a conversation with my parents, Chris, this is why the way we are, because this is the way we were raised it yeah. back generations. And if you don't break that generational, not even curse or whatever, but in your family or whatever, you got to be the one to break it. If, if you want yep. to see change, absolutely. The main thing. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, as a psychotherapist, what are some effective strategies or approaches you use? We just talked about DVT to support individuals. How do you support individuals with addiction? Are there any therapeutic techniques or in their not that I offer. No. <laughs> I tell not you, yet. I, not, I know you're going to start offering something really uh, soon. I yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, not yet. Thank you, sir. Right now in, in the current moment, I do, if I'm, DBT is another effective treatment for addictions and substance abuse. And so if somebody's coming to me primarily for addictions, then I will use DBT as my treatment background or, or tr my treatment approach. But yeah, over the past month, I started the certification, become a, a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist. And I'm purchasing with a, an academy in Alberta called Atma and the Atma Academy. And it's a fairly lengthy course of, but yeah, this is a, the new frontier of therapy and psychotherapy. And I'm really excited to be able to be a part of it with all the evidence and the research that's coming out around the effectiveness of MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, ibogaine, especially ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT for, for addictions has been shown to be like such an effective, almost corrective and curative treatment when it comes down to it. Um, and it's been, oh, I feel like in the next couple of years, we're going to see this becoming more and more a part of the resources that we have. And so it's going to be I think we'll always be working against the stigma around it, but with the evidence and the, the efficacy of what we're going to be doing, um, I hope that counterbalances some of that stigma when it comes down to it. And for someone like myself, who is an addict for 25 plus years using heavy drugs, whether it was crack cocaine, methamphetamines and stuff like that, how would this treatment, and, and I've, and, and I, and I'm only saying this for myself, but I've also seen other people with professional hockey players, professional athletes. Yep that are retired now that are, that are pushing for this. You Push, know, yep. One person in particular, Daniel Carcillo. Daniel Carcillo, yeah. Compassionate use of Blackhawks. Yep. And he's pushing it. He lives in the States now, but he's really pushing it. Another guy is Riley Cote. Yep. Another guy that, that Brady Leavold, mental puck support. Um, yep. Those guys yeah, are all yeah. doing this stuff and, and they're seeing effectiveness as those types of guys. We're all like 
I'm not, I can speak for myself. I know those guys were, cause they've come out about their story. They're very heavy yeah. drug users too yeah. at the time to bury this trauma that they totally. had gone on since a child. What, what do you suggest with like addicts like ourselves or like myself, do you have to, would you suggest going to see your doctor before getting into this? Because as an addict, once I get like that mind mood altering substance, I'm off to the races, but yeah. obviously this is done in controlled doses, obviously. Stunning controlled doses and something like ibogaine. Ibogaine is not something that you're just going to do recreationally. Ibogaine is, it comes from the root iboga. And is, that for, is that like ayahuasca? No. Or is no. this the other one that you can only get in certain places in Canada right now? So yeah, ibogaine, I think it, when it comes down to ibogaine, there's a synthetic form of ibogaine that you're, you, I think you are able to access because it's a scheduled substance still a lot of folks are having to fly down and go to treatment centers that are down in mexico where it's not regulated and and so you're able to get the access to it but yeah there's a protocol of treatment when it comes down to it generally speaking it's a couple doses of of iboga and then mixed in with the 5-MeO DMT, again, it's been shown to be really effective at, at, at helping people with when it comes down to the urges impulses when it comes to the addictions the thing is that it's like potentially a 36 hour experience. It's like 24. You gotta be ready for that. You know? Yeah. It's not an experience I've had. I, I have experienced DMT and psilocybin and LSD. Okay. And, but like Ibogaine, it feels like it's like next level. Same with ayahuasca is another one where like going down to Peru and actually going through the actual, the ceremonies of it and doing that as a whole experience is something I'm very interested in doing when the time is right in my life. But that also feels like it's like, moving up the, the hierarchy when it comes down to some of those experiences because of the intensity that it has. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've known people that have done the ayahuasca experience. Yeah. Apparently there's places around Ontario you can go. I don't know how legal yep. they are, but I've heard, I've heard of things actually not too far from here, actually. Yeah. Still, apparently. Not a lot. It's not going to be anywhere legal. We have ketamine that's actually yeah. approved, um, for the treatment of which we not a classic psychedelic, but it's in the family of psychedelics. But ketamine is one that is, can be prescribed. There's a couple of clinics down in Toronto. They provide it's a, a costly treatment, but again, another effective treatment for treatment resistant depression, PTSD. But right now, the thing is that with it not being regulated, that it's all like underground therapy uh, in a sense. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I get what you're saying for sure. And do you see it being regulated over the next few years? You think? That's I think so. Yeah. I think I, again, the more and more of the, the more and more evidence that comes out around it and the more and more research that is just demonstrating the efficacy of it, I feel like health Canada would just be at the point where it, it, it almost has to get it regulated. What that looks like and when it takes, who knows, um, policy and bureaucracies take time, but we see movements down in Oregon, we see even BC is really loose when it comes down to it. It's technically scheduled, but they have dispensaries, psilocybin dispensaries that you just walk into just a cannabis dispensary or down in Toronto, the same thing. So I think we're lightening up when it comes down to it, but we need to have the, the regulations and the policies to, to provide safe and effective treatment. And Alberta's gone through the, I think it's college of psychologists have started to write their policies, legislations, when it comes down to the regulations of that, which part of that is like demonstrating that like a, a clinician has competency in being able to deliver this. So they are able to demonstrate that they've gone through some form of training to deliver this treatment. And so we need those policies in place to protect the public, but also to protect like clinicians as well.
So if someone, I know you're not fully certified for this and you haven't started mm -hmm. practicing, this is something you're going through with. Yeah. If someone were, do, do, would someone need a doctor's written prescription through a doctor to come do this? Or do you, would you do your own little interview to see if you are a candidate for this sort of thing? Cause you would be sitting with this, I get the, the patient through the whole thing, the route through, through the whole experience. It's not like they're left alone in yeah. a room by themselves no. to do whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. There's a whole pro protocol to it. Generally speaking, it's a couple sessions ahead of time of an assessment and intake, but also a bit of an orientation and an education around what to expect and what the journey is going to be like. And then depending upon the medicine that you're using, let's say it's psilocybin, there maybe there might be, an, and the person might be naive to psychedelics, you might do a lower dose of it, say a milligram of that. And then uh, just to have the experience and then a therapeutic dose might be the second dose and therapeutic doses around 25 to 35 milligrams of psilocybin. That is not grams. So it's not like the amount of grams in a mushroom. So it's just, but, a lot of, but that's a lot of grams. Yeah, it's right now you're not able to, a doctor cannot write a script for it because it's not regulated and it's yeah. a scheduled substance. The, I think the intention is that we can get to that point that we're able to do that to have a prescriber being able to, uh, at, at the present moment, apply through the special access program through Health Canada to be able to provide psilocybin once the regulation has changed, that maybe that would be like less onerous process to do. The academy that I'm doing my training with, they're participating in, a, they're conducting a clinical trial. And so I'll be participating in the clinical trial. And so what that'll look like is I'll, part of the training is that I'll hold space for somebody going, like another clinician going through their journey and then I'll go also go through my own journey myself. And so it's a very experiential training, which I'm really, that's why I chose one of the reasons why I chose doing this training in particular. So, so, so what yeah. you're saying is that you're going to experience, you're going to experience what potentially one of your clients will be experienced sort of things, what it's like and what yeah. they're going to have to go through or every, and everyone's experience is going to be different, but yeah. at least you get to try firsthand. It's not, here's your piece of paper. You've done the work at school. Yeah. Go practice now, but you have no firsthand practice though. So it would be hard, I think. It's like getting a tattoo from somebody who doesn't have tattoos. It's, I don't want somebody tattooing me who has no tattoos and knows what it's like to get under the gun yeah. for a while. Like that's not it. I don't want that. So no, for sure. Yeah. So I, I think we're moving in the direction where we might, we'll see prescribers, we'll see doctors and clinics opening up where they'll have doctors that are part of at least the board of directors prescribing psilocybin right now, though, it. I mean, it's basically, you got to procure your own psilocybin and, and then we go through the process. And then after the journeys, generally, like I said, there's like a couple sessions ahead of time and then there's one or two journey sessions. And then there's going to be what we call integration sessions. So it's like a couple sessions afterwards that help unpack and walk through what the experience is, as well as when you're out of the journey, how your, your brain is integrating all of that, even afterwards, even while you're not under not even while you're on the, under the experience. So it's a, an important piece to help you learn and take, take part in processing what you got out of those experiences. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, man. And I'm glad to see these things and it might not be for everyone and that's okay. But I, I think it is, there's some proven facts and research being done over the course of the last five to 10 years, sort of thing that this is effective, proven effective sort of thing mm -hmm. that helps. No, not say cure addiction or cure your depression or your problems, but gives you a more of a better perspective and outlook on life sort of thing. And yeah. 
and it starts making you think differently and yeah. think in ways that you weren't thinking before thing and absolutely flip the switch yeah those types of things man and what made you or what what made you want to get into the therapy like that sort of thing with all the psychedelics and stuff what was it was there something that you were watching or you're like you know what i want to do this i think it, it really goes back i'd say almost like 12 years 13 14 yeah i don't know about 13 years ago where i i had my own experience with psilocybin that was really it was a big experience a very intense experience but i learned a lot from that and that that experience i guess about maybe 15 years ago actually that really shaped the course of some of my own healing and then doing my own kind of like education of listening to people like aubrey marcus or joe rogan restrap what's his name from the spirit molecule rich strasberg anyways but just like learning more and more about it and then finding out more and more about how the big name institutions and, and universities down in the u.s are like currently conducting research around mdma and psilocybin and, and to show the efficacy and then to also ma marry that with my own experience of that and the healing that came from that was i think the impetus for it and then it was about 10 years ago that I had my first DMT, dimethyltryptamine experience. And that was probably the most, it was top three, top five, most influential, most impactful experiences I've ever had in my life. And it was only a seven minute experience. And that then I think was the chrysalis for me to really get on, get under, get on board with this. And to be honest with you, I do, I, I get a lot of tattoos. I enjoy tattoos. So me and my tattoo artist, we muse about psychedelics and basically every session that I'm in there. And he was a big impetus uh, for me to just do the training, just do it was where we're at right now. And this is where we're going. And yeah, so this is a combination of personal experience, but also the evidence behind it and the future of where we're going with it. And I guess personally, like from what I experience, if I can experience it, I know that this can also gift other people. You're right. It's not for everyone and that's okay, but it's nice to have more tools in our arsenal than just like SSRIs. And so this is going to provide us with that impact. Yeah. That's amazing, man. And for people that don't know, and I don't know tons about it either. I didn't, what is DMT exactly? I know it is a psychedelic, but it, it yeah. doesn't sound like it's a long experience when you go through it. It's a very short experience, or maybe yeah. that's just the one you had, or is there a longer experience with it? Egypt, dimethyltryptamine. So dimethyltryptamine is a, it's a, a naturally occurring molecule. It's in a lot of plants. It's a, it's also okay. part of like mixed in with the ayahuasca when, with that and DMT, generally speaking, I think that if you probably pulled a hundred people and talked about what their experiences were with DMT. It's very similar experiences across board. And so, yeah, it's about, it's a very short lived experience, but when you're in the experience, it feels there's, there's no time in the experience. And so it's also one that just happens so quick, comes on so quick, so strong. And you, you ultimately have to just like surrender to the experience, to what you go through. It's hard to put words to everything that you go through. It's more of an embodied experience as well. One that has visualizations, ones that feels like you become one with just the entire universe. Yeah, it's just a really, 
I'll, I'll be honest, even still now, it's ineffable. It's hard to put words to what that was like. And hands down, probably the scariest experience I ever went through, but it was the, the one experience of I came out of that with the most love I think I've ever felt in my life. And it was just, it was such a dual dialectic, right? To experience this really intense fear and then to just be filled with a tremendous amount of love and light was something that also stuck with me for a long time afterwards. I only had one experience and it was also one experience where it was like, I, I only think I needed one. Fair enough. It's not like you wanted to go back and do it every day or whatever. Yeah, no. Yeah. And that's where I think it tends to be the case with some of these psychedelics is that it's not one where it's, you're going to be, I guess you can abuse anything if you really wanted to allow yourself to do that. But yeah. if you're looking at this from, from a medicinal standpoint and, and looking at this for growth, for healing couple experiences sometimes is all you need. And then maybe it's also like one where it becomes part of your mental health upkeep where folks will go through the experience and then maybe once a year, twice a year, they have add-on experiences and they go through it as well, right? Like as a maintenance, right? As part of doing the work. That's amazing, man. And I appreciate you giving us all a little more insight, you know, on the psychedelic therapies and stuff like that and how good they can be for someone that wants to seek that treatment. Yeah. And like we both said, you know, we're, it's not for everyone and that's okay. It's not everyone. just like, it's okay to not be okay. There's not, this isn't for everyone and that's okay. There's so many different avenues you can go down to get treatment. We're in the year 2023 people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we go, Frank, yeah. what, can you give us all one great piece of advice? Just any great piece of advice before we go. Piece of advice before you go. First thing that comes to my mind here, Chris, is like, we need to all stop minimizing some of the impact of the things that are going, that we have difficulties wise, right? Like I think so many of us just push down, suppress, and just minimize the issues and challenges that we have. And by doing so that inhibits our ability to, to ask for help and, and to talk about it openly and freely in the, and I find that the most healing that we get through is to actually go through the vulnerabilities. And so I would say one, validate yourself, be compassionate towards yourself. And I would imagine that a good chunk of your audience are folks that are on wherever they are in their recovery path and their journey. And so it's just keep pushing. Nothing's linear here. Don't minimize the shit that you're going through. Ask for help. And you got to put in the work. You said it, right? It's going to the grade eight dance sucks. If you just sit on the sidelines, going through the, to the grade eight dance and doing the worm down the middle of the dance is like throwing yourself into enjoying it. But so many of us just show up to the dance and sit on the sidelines and we don't experience it. I think the same thing goes when it comes to, if you want to recover and you want to work towards recovery, you got to put in the work. It's not enough to just show up to therapy or show up to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, or just show up to residential treatment. You got to do the work. You got to put yourself into it. And, it, and, and at some points it's probably going to become everything you eat, sleep, breathe and do. And then as you continue to do that, as the practice of that, it'll start to become more habitual, more part of your life. And yeah, I know that you got a couple years there, come up on a few years there of sobriety and you're putting in that work to maintain it. And to your point, it's just one time, sometimes just a moment at a time. That's so true. And just so you know, everyone, I don't have it all together and, and none of us ever will. That's why it's, I'm always learning every day. 
every minute sometimes i learn something new every day sometimes i have that step back but it's all how you come back though too it's don't keep taking those 10 steps back and get a couple steps forward then another 10 20 steps back If, if none of us failed this world would be perfect right but we're not all perfect all the failures i've had have made me who i am today as well absolutely absolutely where can everyone find you over on social media and stuff if they want to find you? Or if maybe one of my audience who's local or around yeah. wanted to seek therapy from Frank, where, where can yeah. they find you? Yeah. So I only, I, I hang out on Instagram at, at Pew Psychotherapy. My website is uh, www.pewpsychotherapy.com. Those are really the two platforms that I use. And so those two are the two best ways that you can reach out, connect, and by all means, follow along. My social media, is, like, use what I would, I like to do with social media is to try and just promote positivity as well as some snippets around skills, things that come from DBT or exposure response prevention for OCD, a little bit about psychedelic assisted therapy, just continue to spread the word and create more education out there. So those are the two best places that you can get in touch with me. Thanks again, Frank, yeah, for ma'am. coming on the show, man. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come and share your experiences. Give us some advice, some tips and tricks and the new up and coming therapies that are coming out and stuff like that with psychedelic therapy and everyone go out and do your own research too, before you decide maybe this is for me and maybe it's not for everyone. So thanks again, Frank, for coming on the show today, man. I truly appreciate it. You got it, man. It's been my pleasure.